0: Today is November the 29th, 2017, and this is episode 2,121 of the Survival Podcast. That's a double digits, double digits, 2,121. I happen to like numeric patterns because I'm weird, and I like that one an awful lot. And it, as I say it, it makes me pause once again and think about how lucky I am to have been doing this now uh, for about nine and a half years, we'll have our, our 10th year anniversary this coming June in 2018. And what's interesting today is we're going to talk about 2018 today. We're going to talk about planning for spring gardening mainly uh, for 2018. And it might seem weird. I usually do this show around January or February, and I was thinking about this that this week. And as I was thinking about it, this is what I thought. Do you know what happens to you every year, Jack? Like, March comes, and shit that should have been done six weeks ago hasn't been done yet. A lot of stuff you plan on getting done doesn't get done, and you end up kind of scrambling to get everything you can get done done. And a lot of times you end up doing things like buying overpriced plants from Walmart or Lowe's or what have you, or even the local nurseries and things like that, settling for what you can get instead of having what you want. Now, why does that happen? Well that happens because you lay around on your ass in, in January and then you start talking about planning for spring in January and talking about something and doing it are not the same thing sometimes we got to talk about it a little bit and then we get to doing it and then we get to really doing it So I thought and I thought you know what I bet you I bet you I just described the winter spring life of like of the the, of the members of the audience that garden like 80% of you is. I thought, well, maybe you and I should both get off our duffs this year a little bit early, get our planning going on in like this pre, pre-Christmas pre season, right, leading up to it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I'm not talking about actually doing the work. I'm talking about doing the planning. This is kind of an easy time to do planning because you're awake. You're awake. More on that in a bit and how uh, getting a plan together over the next few weeks can make the time after Christmas, as I call the Christmas coma period, a hell of a lot more productive for you. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Very loyal sponsor. Been with us seven, eight years, something like that. Um... Been, I guess they'd probably be in the first five on the list of the first five to join up with the show and become sponsors of it because um, one of the, the chiropractors that works at Western Botanicals uh, listened to the show, thought he liked what we were doing and wanted to be part of it. And uh, I love Western Botanicals because they are very much a mission-oriented company, and their mission is not like to become the largest distributor of herbal products in the country, which would be a pretty noble thing, but it doesn't really benefit anybody other than them. No, their mission statement is to put an herbalist in every house in America. Now, that is a noble mission. And they can they can get it done, I think, eventually in time. And I think trying to get there may uh, accomplish a lot of good, even if they never do. They have everything you could need for your herbal treatments. The, I mean, anything you can think of. From preparations that are already prepared, to raw ingredients, to raw herbs, to instructionals on how to put them together. They've got it all. You can check them out and learn more at westernbotanicals.com. They also offer their premium membership for free to you, which pays for your first year membership in My MSB. Valued at 50 bucks. You can find out more about that in the benefits section of the MSB. Next up today, Self Reliance Magazine. Self-Reliance Magazine has become my go-to magazine for all things and everything, as you might imagine. It's self-reliance. One of the article series, I'm really enjoying there, and I won't butcher the, the author's name by trying to say it. It's a, it's a somewhat strange name to me anyway. But his progression in building tiny homes and sheds, starting out with a little one and getting a bigger one and then building out that place and then selling the whole place off and starting over again with a bigger one and paying for everything as cash as he goes, Just cool as shit and real world, not fake-ass crap. That's what I love about the people at Self-Reliance Magazine. They're real people. They've been in this industry a long damn time. Roots go back into Backwoods Home Magazine. In fact, Self-Reliance has kind of taken the baton from Backwoods Home. I was a subscriber to Backwoods Home for over 20 years, and Backwoods Home has just released. It's last edition after, I think, 24 years in publication. Passed the baton to Self-Reliance Magazine. The baton is in good hands. Check out self-reliance.com today. And you'll see why I say that. Before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 74 A.D. after David Verne and uh, uh, Southpaw Ben have taken someone off of a vacation. David is back, and he has a segment for us today in the year 74, Clients and Patrons. The Roman world was marked by what could be considered an odd arrangement, that of the wealthy patron and his clients. In cities, the first thing Roman men would do after waking up would be to walk to the house of his patron to receive the sportella, or monetary handouts. The wealthy Romans would get out of bed later and open their houses to the waiting group of clients at their entrance. The clients would be received in order of precedence, with higher social classes cutting ahead of lower classes. The patron and client would exchange some brief small talk, after which the client was given his sportella, Some clients tried to arrive as early as possible so they could hit up for a few more patrons before work. There were some people who didn't work who would live off the handouts of several patrons and then proceed to watch games and legal proceedings all day. The patrons not only gave their clients daily gifts, they also provided legal counsel and often provided letters of recommendation. In return, clients would offer political support, and would escort the patron through the city on a journey. During the empire, the relationship lost most of its tangible benefits for the patron, without political support no longer being an issue. It became a status symbol, where the more clients you had escorting you uh, to the way to the forum, and the more important and wealthy you were. The patroness relationship could last several generations after being established. My Take by David Verne. According to Mike Duncan from the History of Rome podcast, quote, If having an entourage of slaves with you was the fancy car of the day, then having the entourage of patrons was a private jet. End quote. The men who acted as patrons were super wealthy of the time. Senators had to, be, had to meet with a wealth required of 1.2 million successors, and even some senators were clients. There was a huge wealth gap in the Roman Empire. For example, the emperor's personal wealth could be half of the empire's GDP. Social unrest was always a problem, but it was largely mitigated by the ability to move up in the social class. If a person managed to meet the wealth requirement of a social class, very little stopped them from moving up in the world. Huh, that sounds kind of sort of like the world of today. If you live in the United States of America, you can move in any social class you want, but the people at the top have most of the money. The, the, the thing is, though, there's plenty of money in the middle. At least there is for now, anyway. I hear people, it's all the 1%'s fault. Why don't you get off your ass and work? It, 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 it amazes me that I see people on Facebook bitching that they're not paid enough. Let me tell you something. If you got time to sit around and bitch on Facebook that you're not paid well enough, then you don't have a deep enough need to go out and figure out how to make more damn money. On the other hand, it's a very weird relationship to me. Like, I just end up like being someone you like, and you have a shitload of money, so I show up at your house every day. We blow, we bull, bull, bullshit a little bit, you know, shoot the shit, chew the fat, or whatever, and then you give me some money, and I go on about my day. And if I'm if I'm enterprising as a patron, I might. Uh, or as a, as, a, as a client, I might go out and uh, get, you know, two or three of you guys to do that for me. I don't know how that works, but am supposed to be your entourage, though. It seems kind of like if you both want to go somewhere at the same time, uh, that little gig might fall apart. It's weird, but I, I'll tell you what I actually see it as being. Yeah, political support and all might be how it started. But like like David said, when when they moved to the world of empire from the world of republic where the senators are just kind of sitting there not doing jack-diddly shit and the emperor's in charge of everything, it didn't really help to have these people politically support you, you know, and you didn't need votes. So at that point, it went past vote-buying, if that makes sense. But what it probably did is you know that these people, right, the, these people that were going to the super-rich and hanging out with them and getting their little hand out on these were the upper-tier people. Of society, so these were like the upper middle class. They have a lot of control on keeping the shit from blowing up. This was let us stay really wealthy and don't hang us from the the, the highest pole. Money. That's what this really was, in, in my view. It was a form of wealth redistribution. And I'll tell you what. Even though I don't get a good feels about it, I actually prefer it a great deal to what we have right now. And 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 I'll tell you why. It was voluntary. It was not at the point of a gun. There was no law that made this have to happen. This was an arrangement worked out between people in a free and open society, by and large. Even in the midst of an empire with an emperor that could kill you by pointing at you and just saying, get rid of him. And there would be no reprisal to him. He could get away with it. In some ways, these people live more freely than we did. Just something to think about when you hear people clamoring and saying the government needs to fix something and do more about something. Because, yeah, that always works out so well. Anyway, with that, guys, before we get into the uh, main topic today, let me remind you one more time. You can help support the show, and you can do that by doing what? Becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade, or MSB for short. All you got to do that is go to com, click on Members. And you can learn more there. And I will leave it at that for today so we can get into it. So we kind of long with the history segment. Um, I do want to say something about that, though. Like, I had somebody show up on the blog. I actually want to read this comment to you guys. Um, I, I'm believing this probably happened from uh, Justin Rhodes. Justin Rhodes recently came to my house. I need to put this out in the blog because I know a lot of you guys don't follow me on Facebook or whatever. Maybe not. I've seen this. But he did, like, a 16-minute documentary on my duck operation. It's badass. And it's gotten a lot of interest in my YouTube channel because most of the people that watch YouTube are YouTube watchers, not maybe per, you know per se podcast listeners. Uh, so it's great; it's 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 brought some new fresh people to the site. But one person came there today, and they left a comment, and it was an interesting one. It was I followed the rabbit trail here from a YouTube video about your awesome duck farm. I hope you won't be offended by my question, but before I sign up for what I hope to be the new go-to source for sustainability info, I would like you to hear your answer to one, how is a waterless pet shampoo relevant to survival? That's our item of the day. You'll hear about it at the end of the show. And did you write the copy for the ad yourself? I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I understand that your podcast vis-a-vis you get support from advertising. i just like to know how much thought goes into the relevance of it because you are, in a sense, asking all your subscribers to consider supporting these various markets and all their practices regardless of their insustainability. Thank you for sharing much of your valuable info and help people network with respect. This was my response, and it has to do with you know joining the MSB and some other things. So, said, okay, well, first signing up, as in for the podcast, is free. So with respect, just effing listen and decide for yourself. As to how this is related to survival, I coined the phrase modern survivalism in 2008. It's a holistic approach to life built on guiding tenet of the entire 12-part philosophy, which is everything you do to prepare for emergencies, disasters, and economic turmoil, should be blended into your life in a way that improves your life even if nothing disastrous ever occurs. Adding to that, the show's tagline is helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if you don't. We don't just teach being prepared for the end of the world. We teach resilient lifestyle and design. This includes taking care of yourself and your livestock and your pets. And in this case, dogs are a big part of our farm, defending the animals, etc. Additionally, I've been doing this for about 10 years. People trust me. My entire brand is trust. I don't lie. I don't mislead. And I admit mistakes. I'm an and I'm an asshole. Yeah, you read it right. I'm an asshole in a good way. I'm tough on people, products, and well, everything. It is either good quality and I'd spend my own money on it, or it's garbage, and I will tell you don't buy it. My reviews of products are to help people get the best value to price ratio for things they need and want in their lives. In both the short and long term, this saves money. Money is then used to build a more resilient life. For instance, I do a lot on cooking. I have a lot of reviews in that world as well. Survival, how many people a year lose a job and end up dead-ass broke in two weeks without a paycheck? Now tell me how many of those people spend, say, $500 or more eating out a month up until they lost the job. So over two years, my cooking stuff results in $10,000 not spent and saved. How much better are they able to handle the individual disaster of a job loss? Let me put it this way. If you want a more resilient life and you want to know how to prepare for disasters, That actually happen or have real possibility of happening and get a hell of an education on life, business, and economics, all for free. Tune in. If you want scary, overhype bullshit about the world ending, don't bother. You won't find it here. On the copy, yes, I wrote it. It is almost insulting that you would ask me if it was written by me as it was written in first person about my dogs. But since you are new here, you may not know that. My listeners, many of them have been with me almost a decade. My life is totally transparent. It is why I have so much trust Every product I recommend is one I have personally purchased. If I won't spend my money on it, I won't ask you to, period. Lastly, if I sign up, you mean my paid membership. Don't do it yet. Tune into a few shows. Use the search box or tag cloud and find some old ones you're interested in. Listen to a few as they come out over the next week. Skip the roughly 10 minutes of intro if it bores you. Get to the meet. Decide if you, this will help you. Then and only then consider becoming a paid member. If you hang around, you won't agree with everything I say. You will be pissed off at me sometimes, but you will come to trust that I'm always honest and I'm always genuine, I dare say more so than any other person in media, mainstream, or alternative. I can't be everything. I can't make everyone like me, so I don't try. What I can be is honest and the same guy on air as off air. So that is what I deliver and have delivered for almost 10 years now. And, and and on the MSB guys, that's how I feel about it. Listen to the show. If you decide that it brings you value, that it's worth more than twenty cents an episode to you and you can support me for eighteen, consider supporting me. I mean that you know, and then take that membership and get your money back. But I wanted to say it today because when I when I answered that question, I was trying to be, you know, really nice to this person because I know they're just asking an honest question. Yeah, here's a survival podcast, and the first thing they say is a waterless dog shampoo, you know, and, and wonder why. But th- that's what this show's all about. Once I wrote that, I realized I want to share it with you guys today because some of you guys have been with me a long time ago. Yep, that's Jack, and a lot of you are going, "Wow, that's Jack," because you're new, and, and you should know. And I, sometimes I think I forget. That after done the show for so long, that there's such a community here that it it can be almost click-like in a way from me, and not that anybody's not welcome, but maybe I assume too much that people understand too much about who we are, what we're doing, and how long we've been here. So that's where it's all from right there. Anyway, guys, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is planting that spring garden. And... uh, so I want to start out with kind of a lesson in taking a trip or a vacation. Um, so I want you to think about how that goes and, and how much better off we'd be if we lived at least most of our life like we were going to take a vacation on Friday. So I want you to think about the last time you were going to take a vacation and, and, and it was going to be like you're going to take Friday off work. So you shorten, the, you take a Friday off, you get a weekend, you make the most out of your holiday or whatever, and get stretch those PTO days or time off days or whatever as long as you can. So you hit work Monday. And, I mean, if you work like a factory line job, I don't mean any disrespect, but this may not apply, because you just do the same thing that you're going to do every day, and then your day off you just don't show up. But if you work a job where you like have to take meetings and do product planning and project management and get certain deadline things accomplished, or even if you don't do that in work, there there's certain things in your life that have to be done that way because of the way you live or the stuff you're engaged in uh, personally, hobby-wise, politically, whatever it is. Then what happens that week is amazing. What usually happens is you make a freaking list of the shit you got to get done so you can go on vacation and not be miserable. And then you start prioritizing it and getting the shit that absolutely has to be done first, done. And then the abs- and the things that really need to be done, done second. And the things that, that are nice to get done, you get as many of them done as you can. And at a certain point, you call it and say, I'm out, and you, you go to vacation. And this will include things like so-and-so wants to have a meeting on Wednesday... And normally you might agree to that meeting and take that meeting, but this week you're going on vacation. Say, hey, I'm in for a short week. Please summarize this in an email. We'll see if we can avoid the meeting. That's something I always did, man. I I want to have a phone call. Summarize it in a freaking email, right? Because if it's going to be something I can handle in five minutes by email, I'm not wasting 30 minutes of intellectual masturbation in a meeting with you. All right. And I know you're wondering, like, how does this apply to spring? It's 20 minutes in, and the jerk isn't even a spring plane. This totally applies to what I'm teaching today. So you 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 cancel certain things, you move certain things, you get them all done, and you get more done in a four-day week than you typically get done in a five-day week, and you go on vacation. Why? Because it became important to you. And because you put a structure into something that generally is not structured, or you put in many instances, you guys that have office jobs, the type of jobs I'm talking about, where you're middle management, upper management, C level, you have a structure because you have to, but your structure allows for a lot of bullshit. And again, what I call intellectual masturbation, which is most meetings are 10% concrete action items and 90% uh, intellectual masturbation. I'll tell you a funny story here. let me give you a laugh as we go into this. One day, I was sitting at a meeting. this is back when I was in structure cabling we uh, I was in there I was a senior sales manager. we had operations manager. we had two owners in the company. We had production project managers like the senior staff basically, all sitting there and and getting ready to have this meeting. And the one thing I'll say for this company, they were a very gun-friendly, outdoor-friendly company. This was a place where common for people to bring guns into the office and show them around and stuff like that. Or maybe have a bullet in the pocket, right? And just to, I don't know why you'd have a bullet in your pocket, but our ops manager had a bullet in his pocket. So one of the owners, Wayne, starts talking. And about five minutes in, it's evident that none of this shit requires a meeting that we're in there for, at least up to this point. And the ops manager, Robert, pulls the bullet out of his pocket holds it up to his temple, and starts tapping the primer as hard as he can with his finger like he's trying to kill himself. And to be fair, Wayne looked at it, got it, laughed, and moved on And nothing but action items and got them done. This is how life works. And it's easy to make fun of this shit when it's going on in a meeting and you're an unwilling participant in it. And I know a lot of you that have to take meetings right now are going... Jesus Christ, does Jack have a spy camera in our our meeting rooms? No, it's just how they are everywhere, okay? But we do this whole intellectual masturbation process all the time with our planning. I'm going to do this and this and that and this and this. And we never reality check it. We never prioritize it. And not only does a lot of it not get done, because honestly, that's why it's intellectual masturbation. You have a finite amount of time, resources, and money. It was never all going to get done. So if it was just that some of it doesn't get done, that would be okay. The problem is, a lot of times, without planning, things that really should have gotten done don't get done. And the bigger problem is, less gets done than would have gotten done if we had put a strict planning process around it. Now that was worth tuning in for for today, even if you kind of suffer through the gardening ones because you don't listen to them, because that's how to run your damn life right there. That's how you run everything in your life. That's how you run your business. Right? Now don't try running your marriage this way, guys. You screw it up bad. You just need to shut up and listen sometimes, I'm telling you. Okay, I, I struggle with it too. Because sometimes, gals, I know you're gonna be pissing me with this, but it takes a woman four hundred words to say what a man would say in fifty or less. You know what? That's okay. We're wired differently, and sometimes we need to shut our holes. And listen, dudes, so don't try to apply this logic with your marital relationship, but do apply it to your general overall flow of life, and certainly with your spring planting. So here's why planting is important to spring planting and the whole spring homestead, you know, because it's not just planting. It's all things you want to get done in the spring, or you're going to have to deal with in the spring. Right? It might involve livestock or something like that. Number one is it works. If you've ever done what I just said during taking a vacation, it works. Like, putting this structure around things, prioritization and scheduling of when they're going to start and end, gets shit done. Right? I think it was Tina Fey on Saturday Night Live said, you can say whatever you want about bitches, but bitches get shit done. Right? And I think that, like, you you know... It can be a negative connotation, using that term for women or whatever. We all know what bitching is, and I've certainly called many a a dude a bitch in my life. (laughs) But there's a certain concept that she's talking about there that's kind of separate from the insult. Like, we all need a little bit of bitching at ourselves to get shit done. And that task list and that prioritization that schedule is a little bit of that bitching. See, a lot of us that work for ourselves, we're accustomed to this. Like, I have to bitch it myself to make sure that my shit gets done for the show every day because I don't have a boss, right? But if you don't have that self-employment kind of internal inner bitch on top of yourself, when you go into your personal life without it, sometimes you can just get lackadaisical because, hey, it's supposed to be fun and all. But there's some of these things we really want to get done, so it works. Number two, it gives you actionable items, as long as they're just ideas in your head, you don't really have a step one, a step two, a step three, a step four. And those actionable items lead you to action. The next is, is the sanity check. It's a sanity check, and we need this. Because we get so many ideas about what we're going to do, and they're never all going to get done. And the problem, again, isn't that they're never going to. It is great to dream beyond your ability. But there's a reason it's great. The reason it's great is because it gives you this portfolio to choose from. And if you only dreamt to your ability, then you would only have those options as to what to do. So by dreaming bigger than, and this again, this is stuff that applies way outside of garden. This is business. This is life. This is everything. By dreaming bigger than we have time for, we get so many options. And then when we put those options into a timeline, or back when we you know, I would do sales and I would I would do some basic project management for the project manager in advance as part of a bid to the customer, you put together something called a Gantt chart. And a Gantt chart shows basically your start dates, your phases for the whole project. And you don't have to get fancy and build a true Gantt chart. If you're not sure what one looks like, Google it. You'll see an, an example of it. But you're building the, the data that would make a Gantt chart, even if it's just a piece of paper, and you're writing down, well, I'm gonna start on this on July 25th. That's gonna take two days. Uh, let me look at my calendar. What two days of time do I have to do that? It's this weekend. Oh shit, I gotta go to the kids' baseball game. Now, I'm down to a day and a half, and that day, so I got one day out of those two days, two half days that I can work on this. So I'm gonna need another day. And all of a sudden, you start to feel, okay, well, the quickest I can get this done then is in this time frame. And you do that with everything on your list, and you come to that conclusion shit, I can't do all this. You need that moment. Because then it makes you get real with yourself and say, of all these things, what are most important to our goals next year? And then you pick and choose them. And you start putting those at the front of the list and you start charting the time it's going to take and the materials and the money it's going to take to do those until you run out of time. And then you have a great actionable list. And even if you don't make it formal, you have a Gantt chart. You know that I need to start on this project by this Saturday, or it's going to push everything out. And guess what? That's why we don't do it. We don't like that. Well, it's that, whether you know the information or not, it's going to work that way. And you'll say, but Jack, you know, always there's things that come up. That's why this is even more important. Because we need to build buffer into this. We need to overestimate how long, overestimate how much it's going to cost. And then we track it as we go. And people are gonna I know you're going to say, do you have a software program for this? No, I do not have a software program for this. Go get a freaking spiral notebook. Okay, like it's still 1985 and just do it. You'll spend more time jacking shit around with a freaking software program To save time and never get anything done, it'll become another form of intellectual masturbation. Use a 5x7 freaking note card stack if you need to, and just write the shit down, or take your phone and open up notes and start plugging it into notes. And then cross shit off when you get done. Make a to do list and outlook. I don't know, but don't make it complicated. All right? But that way, when that thing comes up and you miss that day, You know what you've done to yourself, and you make a decision. Do I push everything out? Do I try to get more done? Or do I create a day for myself by giving up something I was going to do because I wanted to? How important is it? And you make a rational decision. It's that sanity check that lets you do all that. It will allow you to sort the critical from the necessary from the nice to have. I've said basically that a bunch of times now. You, you prioritize that, but until you list it all, you won't come to you won't have to come to Jesus moment where you really admit to yourself, "Yeah, I want this, but I got to get this done, or we're not going to have any production this year." That type of thing, and it prevents you from mixing spring and winter prep items. There's a lot of shit that you really need to get done right now before you have like frozen pipes and dead animals that you can easily let that mental masturbation, right, mix into your spring stuff so you're dicking around with a garden bed that you're not going to need until April when you really need to be insulating pipes today or last week, depending on where you live, or last month, depending on where you live. Just some thoughts on that. So let's talk about some things I got planned for this year to give us some context as we go into you know, some of the things that you can do to, to get this done for yourself. One of the things I want to do is I need to, and I've already got this list written down, and I'm beginning to prioritize and put dates on all of it. Um, basic planning diagrams for annual production. You know what? I want to back up because I left something out of this that I think is really important before I go into my stuff. It, and I, I mentioned it in the intro. The, the, what I call Christmas coma. Christmas coma. This is why I think it's a good idea to get this done now. You need momentum. The hardest part of all of this isn't all the projects and seed starting and mixing potting soil and building a garden. That's all easy. It's getting started. And what people tend to do is, well, you know, I got time off after Christmas, and I'll I'll work on it then, and, and that's all noble. But the families there, and things like that, and you kind of drift through, it and you go back to work, and you do New Year's resolutions, which are pointless, and then January usually is on the homestead side of things, kind of slow, and it would be a good time for all this, but you haven't actually put the plan together yet. So it keeps like, oh, I'm going to do that, oh, I'm gonna... and you keep finding reasons not to, because you're in that winter funk. So if we get the plan together in December, and then we go through our holiday, and we might have some time off to work on something, but we have that list of shit to do, and we have scheduling accomplished, and there's nothing like a schedule to get you off your ass, get you out in the cold weather, if that's what you got to do, and go get it done. So... That's why I think it's so critical that we're doing it this year earlier, about a month to two months earlier than I have in the past. So we'll go back to what I'm going to be wanting to get done. Uh, Planning diagrams for all my annual production. What happened to me last year is we decided we wanted to get back into some annual production. Uh, David Siegler helped me out a lot with building my greenhouse and putting in my aquaponic system, raising up my aviary and putting all those wonderful wicking and deep water beds in. And we, we we ended up, like, he built me some stands, and I ended up having to build my own stands to get all of it and, and you know get the dirt in them and mixed and the wicking working and uh, all the plumbing done and everything. And by the time I got all that done, we were coming up on our spring workshop, and, and I'll be honest, I just went off to, like, Home Depot and Russell Feeds and places like that and just bought whatever plants I could get and threw plants in there. I I, I had no time to even think about starting seeds at that point. And I didn't really know it would go grow, grow good under the, the shade cloth as well, so I just threw everything in there. And I've learned from that experience, and I don't mean the mistake of not being planted. I mean actually just like actually was a good thing last year to just throw everything in there because I know what grows good in the aviary now. I know what grows good in the in the grow beds in the in the greenhouse. That I want to expand the greenhouse, and I've already decided that's like a fall 2018 project. It just it ain't gonna help me to do it right now. So that's kicked, that's punted. And now I wanna make sure that all that growth space I have is significant, that I make optimum use of it. I also know the systems I'm going to be installing. I know exactly how many beds there are gonna be. I'm gonna plan all of that too. And it ain't gonna be a beautiful drawing all done to scale, with you know graph paper, whatever. It's gonna be a bunch of circles where all the beds are and just a listing, you know, four peppers, you know, pole beans, winter squash, whatever's going to go in them, just so I know. Then I can take that list and say, of these plants, what do I have to start indoors myself in order to have it? Because there's some stuff I have to start it indoors myself to have it. It it can't be planted as seed after the first frost date and give me a good performance. It won't grow fast enough. And I will not be able to buy it from the local box stores. Then there's items that if I, if I don't start it from seed, I can buy them from the box store. And then there's items I can start from seed right in the grow beds. And by breaking it up that way, so you can see a very small thing. One little thing, basic planning diagrams for all. One little thing, it leads to this deconstruction that creates a complete organizational priority list. Well, obviously, of the space I have to do seed seed starting and the new plant varieties I want to try and certain things that I know I can't get or I I can't depend on being able to get from a Lowe's or a feed store, those have to be prioritized and get in the grow tent with the grow lights first. And then if there's room, then maybe we worry about the stuff we could source. Does that make sense? But if I don't do this planning process, that shit never happens. Isn't it cool how quick it starts to, to take structure? The next thing is, as part of that, I'm and this is something I got to start on like very very soon. I actually think I'm going to order the materials for the tank portion of this system um, this maybe this week and have it delivered. Uh, it's mostly four by fours. But if you see my aquatic system, we call it the Miyagi the timber frame pond. It's eight by eight. Uh, I'm building this winter a 10 by 12 version of that, and it's going to be surrounded by two 24 foot long rows of wicking beds, and then flanked on the other two sides by two 10 foot rows of wicking beds. And I believe, if I remember right, each of the 24 foot beds is going to hold, I think, six of the hundred gallon stock tanks. So that's 12 of them and then 3 will go in the 10 foot beds. I think that's how the numbers worked out. I'm not I'm not exactly sure yet. I got to go through that again and figure it out, but I've got the the layout. I've got the area pegged out. I've got the overhanging brush trimmed out of the way. But even though that project's not done yet, I can already diagram all the plantings in there. Once I go get my sanity check and see if 3 of those things fit in a 10 foot bed, I think they do. And if they do, great. If they don't, it's going to be two of them. And how do we make use of the extra space that that'll leave? I don't know yet. But once I figure that out, boom, done. We're moving on to something, you know, additional. Um, so that's another thing I have to do. And so what that has entailed already is I've already, now that I did diagram on graph paper, and that really helped. And I went through like 20 reiterations. In the end, it's still nothing but five boxes, but now we end up with a very elegant, very Japanese symmetrical diagram that fits into the design. Uh, seed starting, uh, including a grow tent this year. I did not use grow tents, even though I talked to you guys about them. A lot of you guys used them. You had great results. Uh, I just have some bookshelves in my office that are just to my left. And I just set up my plants, and I set the little 45-watt Kingbo grow lights up over top of them and put my plants underneath them, and I did pretty good with that. Uh, but I know, I mean, I saw the stuff that, that my buddy David did that he did inside a grow tent, and it was fantastic. So that's that's something I'm considering doing this year. In fact, I'm not considering it. I am doing it, and I'm already beginning my research. Like, what do I want to do? Like, the Kingbow 45-watt grow lights, I think you guys have purchased over the last year uh, like 600 of those through my affiliate links, if I remember the last time I looked it up. And I've had no complaints. And I have no complaints about the ones I have. But I am thinking about upgrading. And Kingbo makes one... Actually, they make they make one that they, comes in three different models. And I'm considering kind of the, the middle one right now, uh, in conjunction maybe with the 45s. It is a 600-watt, uh, 12-bands uh, uh, light. It is... It is kind of a beast. It's very well reviewed. It's 150 bucks, And it's really optimally designed for like a 3x3 three three growing area, and it'll cover up to a 4x4 four four growing area. And I figure inside a tent, and I have several of the 45 watt lights. I have at least two because I'm looking at one of them. I know I gave a few of them away to people uh, because I had people over asking me about them. Like, yeah, I'm going to get some. Here, take one of them when I was done with them for the year. But I have at least two. I could pop those inside there with this big light for that peripheral edge stuff, and and I think a five by five grow tent I could start a ass load of plants with. So I'm considering that, and I'm also like looking for the grow tent. And I have links to both of these. I just want to be clear. Uh, I have not yet decided which, you know, what I'm going to buy yet. So these are like my my finalists right now. But Grow Sun makes a 60 by 60 by 80 inch tall grow tent, lots of vents in it, lots of room to work. And even if I only start seeds in a 4 by 4 area, I mean, you know, you, you have that extra space is good. And what I, here's what I'm actually thinking about doing. I have found that a lot of plants like the greens and stuff, they really whoop ass under those 45-watt grow lights. It's plenty for them. And then some of the things like melons and peppers and tomatoes might do better with more light. So what I'm thinking about doing is building a, a low shelf. And actually, I have an old oak table that was uh, from some of my father-in-law got from one of his factories. It might just work for this. And just basically attaching two of the 45s to the bottom of it. And then you have a 5 by 5 grow area, let's say a 4 by 4 grow area for your, your lettuces and your spinaches and stuff like that down at the bottom. And then on top of that, you can put all of your bigger stuff with your, 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 uh, your heavier grow light way up at the top of the tent. And with all that reflection in there, everything should do massive. And that basically doubles the starting area without going to too high-end lights and keeps the cost down. So that's what I'm thinking. Now, here's things I have to figure out. And this is, see, this is why having this action item list makes you actually do a better job. I have to figure out, so where do I want this thing to live? It's, it's a five-by-five five thing. Since it will be relatively warm in there with the lights on. And since I could easily take something like a Thermocube and a small heater I could put it in my garage or one of my outbuildings, and it should be fine. Even if the temperatures go down to 10 degrees, it should be fine. It might actually be better that it has more temperature swing going on uh, in spite of like the heat generated by the lights and all. That might be a good thing. However, if I wanted to be absolutely secure, i got two big-ass rooms upstairs. Am I going to do a spring workshop? I don't think I am, guys. I don't think we're going to have a, a, a spring workshop. We're going to do just a fall. Um, so I'll probably not have anybody sleeping up there. And if I do have guests, you know, if I put it in one room, there's still another guest room available. So if it's upstairs, so I have to like make that decision. How's Mrs. Spirker going to feel about this thing being up there with lights and a fan humming and all for how long? And those rooms are very, very warm rooms as it is. Because they're upstairs and they don't get quite the pumping AC that we do downstairs and all. That's actually good for... But then they're upstairs and i got to go up there to water them and check on them and all that other stuff. And I fall off on it. So I have to make that determination. But I already know the gear basically. So i got to start planning that out. And and if I didn't start this thought process now, I guarantee you I'd end up half-assing it. It's just because it's human nature. Um... I'm building a forage system for the quail aviary. I'm pretty jazzed about this. Uh, it's something I've had planned for a long time, and this I see a, actually as a winter project. This is something I need to get to. It's not going to take long. I've trialed it already. I had a screen door I'd built for the first aviary, the first rendition of the aviary. It didn't really work for the second. So it was basically a double frame door with a uh, quarter inch hardware cloth on it. And I just took a skill saw and cut right through the wood and the hardware cloth and everything down the center support, and it made two squares. And I laid that on the ground in the aviary, which, of course, is a dirt ground, and threw some ryegrass and sunflower seed down started watering it. And it started coming up. And I believe in trialing things with, like, cheap or no cost, because it was zero cost. And it took five minutes. And I just wondered why I didn't do it sooner, probably because it wasn't on a list. And, like, for a week, I got, like, no growth. And then I came out there today, and beautiful green coming up everywhere. So my big question is going to be, how, how does it work with chickens in there? Because David, my buddy David, does this with his quail. And the quail, when quail eat greens, they kind of snip it off. Like a little gardener snip, 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 snip. They don't pull. Chickens like to pull. How well is it going to work? Do I want to make any modifications? Because in the end, I have a 50-foot-long aviary, and I'd like to basically make this fodder system 50 foot by 1 foot up against the far outside wall, where, by the way, the shade cloth ends and real sunlight comes in, that would be good for it, and just basically keep fodder running year long for these guys. But I want it to be modular so, yes, after a certain amount of time, I can take out a section of it and, you know, rake it up and all and let the birds go in there and break down the crap that's falling through and all, or when we mulch, move it out of the way and remulch the inside of there because we do basically a deep litter uh, composting system through the whole thing. Uh, so I wanted to trial it first. Looks like it works, but you know, once the things start popping through, we'll see what the birds do with it, and do I need to make any modifications? So that's something else I want to do. Um, I need a new run of quail for production. Uh, we've had quite a few quail murder themselves by flying into the the, the water tanks, and uh, I just put rafts in the water tanks that cover like 60% of the water surface, and the other 40% is covered by an ebb and flow bed. And this morning I found another quail. that flew up there, probably landed on the raft, and then walked into the water like an idiot. So, you know, I'm thinking, like, how do I handle that? And everything I come up with seems like a bad idea as far as keeping them out. Part of me feels like, you know what, when they kill themselves and land in cold water, they're still good to eat. Don't worry about it. That one just volunteered to get bacon wrapped around it. Uh, and, And another part of me thinks, you know, I clip their wings. That works for a while. They grow their wings back really fast. Maybe I just need to pinion them when they're when they're chicks. Pinion basically means remove the wingtip. If you do that, they're not gonna be flying. So that's that's some I've never done. I'd have to learn that. I feel like it's an awful horrible thing to do, but then I read stuff about it and say basically they don't even react to it. So I don't know. But that's all stuff for me to consider. but I no matter what, um, I need a new run of quail in there. My The birds I have are older. It's probably time for them to graduate to bacon school. Um, and they're they're not really laying real good for me anymore. So it's it's, it's probably about time for that because I want the Bantam chickens to raise me quail for me. That's that's the goal in there as a whole. Um, I also have a uh, plan this year. I'm probably not going to be doing Duck Chronicles Season 4 this year. Uh, I put a lot of time into doing Duck Chronicles. I've done three seasons of it. There will be plenty of video content this spring of all this other stuff. The ducks will be featured in them. But officially doing, you know, here's the ducks. We're going to go to the the post office and pick them up. And, gee, the post office screwed up and couldn't find my number even though it was right on the box. And, like, last season, here's me meeting the mail lady in the middle of nowhere to get my ducks out of a box and stuff like that. It's really the same thing every year. I've done some progression with it, moving to different brooders and stuff. But the big thing is I don't think I'm bringing baby ducks in this year. I've got a really great head count on my birds. They're really in still peak production. It would be a great thing this 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 spring to just not have to brood ducks. So instead of just not doing anything, I'm thinking about brooding chickens. And, and here's why. I have to brood ducks for about six to eight weeks before they can go with the flock. And it's... Involved, it's complicated. As you know, they make a mess. They get wet. If they get wet and they can't get dry, they die. I mean, it just it's it's a mess. And then at the end of it, you have a duck that for the next four months eats food and produces nothing, and and incurs a, a food debt. So it's it, it's psychologically draining on some level. And taking a year off of it seems like a, a pragmatic approach, and it seems like economically a good idea. We just don't need a new flock. This year. That we're good. And uh, we'll be forced to cull if we do. And I don't and I don't have birds I need to cull. So just not doing it. Maybe the, the scubbies will make me some babies or something like that. And might do a little more work to encourage that this year. Uh, might pen up some drakes with some select females. Stuff like that. But that's all easy. Not much work. So I want to do chickens. And I don't want to do chickens to keep them. I want to do chickens to take them to... Uh, Weatherford Graduation, where they will be processed into deliciousness. And that's an 8-week to 10-week process. So the whole process is not much longer than just the brooding process, and frankly, it's a hell of a lot easier. So, But I thought this would be a good one to show you how the single-action item, like get ready for pastured chickens instead of ducks this year, breaks down into its own micro plan. Well, I have to do brooder construction. I'm probably not going to brood chickens in the quantity that I want to raise them in in Rubbermaid tubs like I've done the ducks, and I'm not going to use the outbuilding that we used last year because that was like a one-time thing. Now it's actually a storage building. So I've got to construct a brooder. i got to think about where that brooder is going to go. How am I going to do that? You know, What's it going to be like? And, and I honestly think what I'll probably do this year is figure out some sort of a tray mechanism to collect shit in and I will stack cinder blocks that I'm going to need anyway for another project and put a uh, big, heavy hardware uh, cloth top on it, and they can be out there in the garage, and I'm all worried about a rat getting into them or something like that. Uh, the rat would be the only thing I'd worry about because the doors will be closed, so raccoons and possums and stuff I'm not real worried about. That's probably how i do it, but I ain't decided yet. But i got to get that plan done and figure out how long that's going to take, when I'm going to start on it, you know, when it's going to be done. I also have to think about chicken tractors. So obviously they're going to come out of the brooders. I'm not going to free range them. They're probably going to be plain old Cornish birds that I can get dirt cheap at Atwoods down the road. I don't have to order them. I don't have to worry about getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning one day because the post office called and they're not really there or whatever else. I just go pick them up, and I can, I can go to Atwoods or I can go to Tractor Supply and say I'm going to want 75 of them because they'll never have 75 otherwise. But if I tell them in advance, they'll take care of all that shit for me. And they'll call me and say, your 75 birds are here. Come get them before we sell them to somebody else. Go get them and dump them in the brooder and then dump them in the chicken tractor. Um, but, you know, what type of chicken tractor am I going to do? When's that going to get started? When does it need to be done by? When are the birds going to be on pasture? And I probably need to build two. Um, and then I also think quantity. If I do it for just me, it'll probably be 25. 25 is about as many chickens as I want to mess with at one time for my, you know, to put in the freezer and cut up and all that. Um, maybe more like 20. But I'll do 25 to account for losses and give a couple away. But I thought, you know, neighbors, people that are local listen to this show, I could probably raise 100. I could probably raise 100 and it ain't much more work than 25. It's more cost, but it's not more work. And arrange some way that we can take care of processing where you go, like have a big graduation day and I'll rent a trailer or whatever I need to do and I'll haul all the chickens to Weatherford and I'll give you your chickens right there, and we'll tag them. And you go in to Shane, who's the guy that does the, that runs the place and handles the processing. You sign for your 10, and I think it would be a minimum 10. And it would be like a flat price, like $20 a bird or something. It's the only way I'm going to do this. So I've got to figure out if that works, if the city makes sense. Maybe the first year I should just do 20, 25 for myself. Maybe I should do like 50 and do 10 for a couple people that are personal friends. I don't know yet, but i got to figure that out. I, once I have that, i got to figure the date that I'm going to order them, and then that's going to give me the date that's on pasture and the date of harvest. And the date of harvest will be within a week or two based on how big they are. But you see how that one thing breaks down to this, this very clear plan of what needs to be done now. Well, if we put these things in place in December, we're working on them in January and February instead of talking about them in January and February. So... On all of this, there's also for your planting, your gardening, and so there's some key dates to determine. And I want to talk about a few of them. You can look up, you know, a lot of these things, and some of them you're going to be generating. One is your last frost and last hard freeze dates. And those are not the same thing. You know, your last frost date might be something like mid April, but your last average hard freeze date might be like the third week of March. Well, why does that matter? Well, if your soil temperatures are pretty warm, you know, once that hard freeze date's gone, we can be, if you're going to plant in-ground and larger crops like corn or stubble, that stuff can go in. It's going to take 10 days to emerge, and it handles light frost just fine. Or there's certain plants that like we can just like, I'm not even worried about frost, I'm worried about hard freeze, like peas. Peas are a great early crop. So when you know those dates, we can do things like plant peas, and even though they'll still be producing... Well, maybe we're dropping a tomato right in with them. We just prune them back a little bit to give that tomato a little space and a little light. Those peas are producing nitrogen for that tomato, by the way. And when it starts to get too hot, those peas are going to die, or we're just going to start pruning them off and accepting the fact that they're they're not going to give us enough to keep them around anymore. And the tomato or pepper or melon or whatever will take over. Well, we that's called secession planting, and everybody talks about it. But the only way you can really do it well, especially when we're talking about starting plants, knowing when to start them, knowing how long it takes to be ready for them to get planted. So, when should we start based on when it's going to go in, is to plan this stuff out. And we need those last frost and freeze dates to get that done. Um, and that will give us that other date I'm talking about the date to get your seed started by, which all won't be the same. We plant a tomato plant seed. And it takes maybe 10 days to germinate. And in two more weeks, it's a little bitty plant, little bitty, bitty tiny thing. And we're probably going to want to grow it from the day we see the little sprout come up until we put it in the ground for somewhere between four and eight weeks and probably closer to eight than four. Six probably being minimum. And some species and in some situations, ten. Now I want you to think about a totally different thing. A lot of people always start their squash in the ground. I actually think squash is a really great plant to start in starter pots and then plant out. I think you should start them in bigger starter pots and let that root mass get really, really big on them and keep them really, really bushy and and kind of butch and spready instead of spindly. We can do that with a little bit of pruning and stuff like that. But if we put a, a, a squash plant... In our grow tent, start the seed eight weeks before it's supposed to go into the ground. We will probably get it so large that it will actually stunt itself in the pot before we can take it outside. So, just because those two plants ideally would go in the ground about the same time tomatoes, squash, peppers, right? Those plants, like you want to be after your your danger of your your last frost, but they're not going to start the same time. So we don't just need the dates to get our seeds started by. We need to classify what we're growing and what gets started when. You know, lettuces and, and cold crops and greens and broccoli and stuff like that, we, we want, want to start that now because we can put that out when it's freezing, especially with a little bit of protection if we live in the south. In the north, we're going to put it out toward the end of the of winter, but we ain't worried about it getting frosted or, or anything. We're just worried about it getting hit with a massive, heavy freeze while it's really small. So all of that, all of that changes everything, and by making this plan, you start to get those dates. So they, when we have those dates to get our seed started by, then we can get our planting dates. Then we know, okay, if I'm gonna start this then, that I'm gonna have like this two week window to plant it. Okay, is that land too late or too early in the season? Let's adjust it now. We move one, the other one moves. It's a Gantt chart, even if we don't make it into a Gantt chart. Another thing we need to do is get our construction start and end dates. And we need planned dates and drop-dead dates. So we plan the, the optimum dates, but we, we're going to be honest with ourselves and say, listen, I don't get this project started by this date. It's not going to be done by the time I need it to be done. So that's a drop-dead date. That's where I'll have to start changing some other plans if I'm going to go past that. Fertilizer amendment dates. You know, a lot of people, I'm all natural and blah, 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 blah. Look, you can be all natural and organic, but it still makes sense to use organic fertilizers, especially early in the season. Let me give you a little soil biology lesson here. So it is true that especially with lots of organic matter and compost and and, and, and dynamic accumulators like comfrey in the system and uh, nitrogen fixtures like legumes being rotated through the system, that you can get... Everything in worms and worm castings. You get everything you need without ever buying a bag of bone and blood meal or kelp meal or anything like that or some garret juice or some Dr. Earth liquid gold or any of that. You, you you can. There's no doubt about it. It's in there. But soil activity and life is directly correspondent to Temperature. And in the early spring, when those temperatures are cold, think of it like fish in a tank. If you've ever kept fish in an outdoor tank, and you go out there when, you know, maybe there's a little bit of ice around the edge of the pond, and on their fish it can handle the temperature and all. They're not active. And as the, the season progresses, maybe that water gets up into the 40s and low 50s, they're swimming around a little bit. And when you throw some pellets on top of the water, maybe a couple of them come up and nonchalantly eat it but they're not really going but that water starts hitting like the mid 60's, low 70's and if they're that are accustomed to being fed like that, you throw some pellets in there, it looks like piranha, the old piranha movies from like the 70's and 80's blah, 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 blah. why? because they're biologically active now, because they're responding to temperature okay so that's how a fish works, that's how most of the life in your soil works as it gets warmer up to a certain point get too hot too, but as it gets warmer, it becomes more and more active. Well, the way that you get this nutrient exchange is this plant has a root, and the plant says something to itself like Dear self, dear pea plant, what do I need right now to be happy? Now it doesn't actually happen this way, but it almost spookily does given what I'm about to tell you next happens. Well I need some I need some uh, manganese. And so the plant exudes a little secretion from its root, a little goo. We call that goo an exudate. And that exudate basically is like a sugary cake or a bread. It's some sugar and some carbohydrate and a little bit of fat. Not much protein. And you might wonder why it would do that. Would you ooze this little bit of goo out? Well, what it does is there's... Soil organisms that are able to access manganese when the plant can't. The manganese is not bioavailable to the plant. So what happens is these soil organisms are attracted. They actually move. These are like little critters, like when you put pond, up, drop a drop of palm under a microscope, you see all the little prozo and stuff. That kind of thing. It's it's nematodes, it's 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 tons of stuff I don't have time to go into today. It's not a soil class. And they start moving over and they eat that exudate. The plant releases it specifically to attract the organisms that will provide it what it needs. And then they gobble it up and they poop. They excrete waste. Most of them don't actually poop the way we think of it, they don't have an anus, but this for sake of, you know, understanding, they crap. And in that crap is manganese. And it's in a different form than it's free form in the soil and the plant goes tsch! And just that little tiny bit is all that it really needs. And all of these the micro and macronutrients all basically work that way. There's tons of nitrogen in the soil, but can the plant access it? Is it easily available? Some of it's easily available. Some of it has to go through a process and dynamic interaction with other critters to become available. Well, in the early season, this is why your plants just kind of like sit there and, uh, well, it's too cold. Well, many of those plants can grow in the cold. They're not getting the nutrients they need, and a lot of times they get stunted and they never do well or they get diseased or pest predator because they didn't get off to that banging start. So when we use fertilizers and soil amendments early in the season Instead of boosting growth or encouraging blossoming, what we're we're actually doing is we're encouraging rapid initial growth and strengthening and health. And we're doing it at the time where the, the stuff's in the soil, but because tomatoes don't natively grow in Georgia. They just don't. You never drive down the road in Georgia, look over the dish and go, holy shit, look at all them tomatoes there. It doesn't grow. They're not a native species. We are cultivating them where they could not otherwise self propagate. Now, sometimes occasionally they actually do make it through, but in general, they don't make it. Peppers, for instance, are not an annual. Some of you are like, Yeah, I know this. Jack's talked about this before. Well, you go, What the hell is he talking about? Bullshit peppers on not My granddaddy grew peppers, my great daddy grew my daddy grew them, and I grew them, and my son's grown them, and I'm telling you right now, they die every year. The damn things are not annual or perennials they're annuals i know it no sorry you're wrong peppers are a relatively short-lived perennial shrub and they actually benefit from low temperatures but they die in freezing temperatures and what i mean is like the best thing that can happen is to get a season like this with your peppers you get them in the in the in the starter early you get them in the ground early you escape your first frost It gets really warm really early like like an indian summer or something. And they really bang and they get a lot of nitrogen. They're green and they're big and they're stocky. And about the time you're waiting for them to put their first flowers, you get a cold front and you get like a week of temperatures in the 60s, not in the 30s, but like the 60s or the, or the 50s, even. And they will just flower their ass off. And then they'll, and when that heat comes back, they'll bang with production. And that's because they run in cycles like that in their native climates where they come through a winter and they come out in spring into production. But their winter is what we call fall and spring here. It doesn't freeze. If you take pepper and you have it in a pot, for instance, or a big bucket or something like that, and you grow it all through your season this year, and especially if you'll prune the hell out of it like a bush... And bring it inside every day that it goes below, let's say 40 degrees outside through the winter. By next season, you'll have a great big huge pepper bush that'll still go right back into production. It may even produce for you depending on what's going on with your temperatures through the winter. And it can I've got one, one guy that listens, I think he's got peppers now his fifth season to bringing them in every year and not having to always start with little peppers. Well, what does that mean? That means that when we take that little pepper plant, we put it in the ground when the temperature is still in the 40s. It's not going to die, but it can't get enough soil. It can't get enough nutrient. The soil is still cold. And so we can do things to warm it up. And I mean the soil, not the plant. Laying down black plastic will warm your soil faster and get more activity going. But amendments, putting in those fertilizers and amendments and planting those dates to do that. Probably before you even plant. Really makes a lot of sense. Um, next, on that same note, not really with annuals, but like spraying your trees in perennials. So every year I use a garlic pepper tea that helps with uh, pest pressure, and I use Garrett juice and a few other things, and I spray all my fruit trees. And I spray them right at bud break, and I spray them right at leaf out, and I spray them right... Um, Rate right at fruit set. And it's, even though I have a lot of trees and a big property, it's a really quick process. Uh, I used to have, I, I still have it, but I used to use an uh, electric sprayer, little 30 uh, gallon tank, and I put it in this trailer, and I hooked it up to the battery on my, my little lawn tractor and just drive around, and spray everything. I went and got a backpack back, 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 back sprayer last year. It holds, uh, I think, three gallons. The hell of a lot easier. But, you know, like, do all your trees break bud and at the same time? No. But it's kind of similar time-ish when most of them are, and I just set those dates now, and I just do it. Is it perfect? No. But I don't let perfect be the enemy of what? The good. And that way the three sprayings happen every year, and I get much better production that way. So that's another type of key date that you might determine. Now, in making your life easier next year, I'm going to suggest that this year, every one of you keep something that I would call a garden book. And I got that term from Thomas Jefferson, and I have a copy of Thomas Jefferson's garden book. I think it's a fantastic piece of history. Some of you might consider I'll throw a link to it in the show notes today. And I, I don't know if they make an electronic copy. I would get the printed copy. This is a pretty big book, and it's something that's really interesting, at least to me, as kind of a horticulturist and a and a fan of American history. Um Lots of little side notes and stuff, and they're very, very cool. But it's basically Thomas Jefferson's journaling of his garden. And I think we should do the same thing. And here's some things I think you should keep in your garden book. And, again, this can be a spiral notebook. It can be a nicely bound thing, whatever you want it to be. Uh, number one, your weekly high and low average temperatures and any frosts or any extreme events. I, I, I initially was like, I think you should keep your, your temperatures every day. I'm like, you'll never use them. You'll never, it'll be too much information, TMI, and you'll never use it. But you will be able to page through and go, you know, hey, it was this week the frosts really stopped, or here's when the latest ones came in. Because all the information you look up online, it's it's their best guess of what happened. It's not your reality of what happened where you are. I've had one frost this year so far, and the, the TV people... And the Weather Channel people say our low that night was 37 degrees. I have a one-word response to it or a two-word response to it based on how you particularly write it, and I bet you know what I'm about to say. Bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Now it's a three- or six-word response, but that's how I feel about it because I had it just frostburn the shit out of my sweet potatoes. And a bunch of in my my water spinach. On. It didn't kill it, but it really knocked it back. And I'll tell you what, I don't think it was below freezing for long. But it went below freezing when I went out in the morning and I checked the thermometer out there. It was twenty nine degrees. I think it was twenty nine degrees for about fifteen minutes. That was like. Just when the sun's just coming up, that last dark and first light, that's that if you've ever hunted, you know. The sun starts coming up and you expect it's gonna get warm, and before it actually gets up, there's that that drop of like two or three degrees. I think it was below freezing for maybe an hour and a half. But how long does it take to kill a tomato if it's not protected? Well having that data is good. Write down, you know. When your blackberries put flowers on? When did your tomatoes put flowers on? When did you plant your seeds? When did you lose something? When did you first notice a pest? When did you first notice a predator? The date of rain activity. If it rained, how much did it rain? When did it rain that day? Keep a journal. And I don't like the idea of doing this electronically. I try to do as much stuff as I can electronically, but I think like... You know, a a, a book with a pen attached to it, hanging in your shed or wherever you go every day to walk your garden or whatever, where it won't get rained on. It just makes it really easy, and then you'll do it. And you'll see it. I think it's what's more important than your phone, doing it like in in some kind of app or something, because then it's there, but like your phone's always there. But when you walk out and take a look at everything, that way, yeah, there it is. And, you know, just... Go ahead and like write down. Go ahead and write down your daily temperature readings, but then make one entry for that week's average, and note that it froze or it didn't freeze, and then you're past and you ain't worried about it anymore. Um, in ground seed planting, when did you first put the seeds in the ground? When was your first germination? How long did it take? Pest activity, bud break on your perennials. When did your apples first break bud? When did they first blossom? Flowering and first harvest of your annuals, your perennials, all that good stuff. If you do that, what you'll find is doing this, like, if you've never done this before, and I have to be honest, I never have. Not to the level I'm talking about today. I've always half-assed it, and it's better not doing it at all. But, like, I came up with this process, and and again, this extends beyond gardening. What I did this year is I said, you know what I want you to do, Jack? I want you to think back to before you had this complete freedom in your life, and not to just being a, you know, a, a wage slave employee, but being a company owner, having employees, and having to manage meetings and all that shit. How did you do all that? And then let's develop a process that works for gardening, homesteading, etc. And that's what I did. That's how this came about. And I, I've, I, I can't tell you that it will work better than anything I've done or anything you've done, because I haven't done it this detailed yet. But I know it will. I mean, I absolutely already know that it will because I have used this process in other walks of life, and it's always worked better. And if you just think about the logical progression of things, it's it's because it has to. Anyway, that kind of wraps up our show today. Before I tell you about the item of the day, which I kind of mentioned in that little segment that I read, I wanted to actually... Give you guys kind of a, a cryptocurrency update. I know that like something like this has become the cryptocurrency show. We haven't actually talked about it a lot in the feedback shows the last couple of weeks. There haven't been questions on it. So the people that bitch about uh, the content, I would always say especially with like t- t- subjects like cryptocurrency, I seldom do a dedicated episode. and uh, the listener question shows, whether it's the call in uh, or whether it's expert counsel. Uh, or whether it is the, uh, the email in-shows, those are all driven by you. So if you want more content on something, start making content by asking questions. Um, but cryptocurrency is important. And it's important because it is going to change the economic reality of the world. And, and something very important just happened, and it already unhappened. And I'm sure there's already people celebrating it who are the naysayers, who have been saying how bad this stuff is from the beginning, and that is, Bitcoin went over ten thousand dollars. Actually, it went over ten thousand dollars yesterday, but it did it for such a mouse fart in time that it went largely ignored. Today, not only did it break ten thousand dollars, it blew through ten thousand dollars. It blew through eleven thousand dollars, and it, I think it topped out at like eleven two, eleven three, somewhere in that range. And then there was a lot of celebration, and about 10 a.m. this morning, it began a a drop, a rapid drop, down to, oh, $8,900. And it has since recovered to $9,500. And I I think this is what you have, even though it's already come back through the $10,000 level. I think you're about to watch Bitcoin establish a fairly stiff floor at $10,000. For a completely irrational reason, it was a psychological barrier. It's like the four-minute mile. Once it's broken, it's broken. And in the minds of people now, Bitcoin's at least a $10,000 thing. On top of that, it has taken the entire concept of cryptocurrency and it started to at least push it mainstream. And I try to be very careful with my advice. And, and and here's one example of why. I'm sitting on a fairly large stockpile of Bitcoin. The majority of it was purchased when Bitcoin was under $500. And then a lot of it was received as payment for... Non material goods like MSB or through affiliates or something like that. So even the stuff that I'm I'm holding that was higher than that when I got it, it might have been yesterday I got, you know, 10 bucks worth from Coinbase for an affiliate link or something. It didn't really cost me anything. I didn't have to go take money and buy it. The stuff that I bought, the majority of it again, sub 500 bucks. So when I say I don't give a flying shit if Bitcoin goes $7,000 tomorrow, I mean it. I don't care. I know the world. I told you it was a scam. Yeah, gee, it's only up like 8,000%, but it's a scam because it went down from an unrealistic high. Yeah, I, I get it. However, long term, I am very bullish on Bitcoin. That's why if I was, if it, if the only rationale for me holding it was I got it so cheap, I would sell it. All right? Um, when you have any investment, you have three things you look at. Would I buy it? Do I hold it? Or do I sell it? And, and, and my belief is if you wouldn't buy any of it at its current price, you probably should sell it. Okay? So would I buy any Bitcoin right now? If I didn't have any, I would. But I wouldn't buy a lot of it if I wasn't sure about why I was doing it. So I want to be careful. I don't want anybody going out there because Bitcoin could go to $7,500 tomorrow. It could also go to $14,000. No. Okay, well, if I would have told you a week ago that Bitcoin will cross eleven thousand dollars in the next week. You, right? So okay, don't don't play that game because you 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 don't know and I don't know. But here's the fundamental reality. You're starting to see this kick in. Forbes had an article out today, and here's what it was. Bitcoin's new price shows the irrationality of investors. No, you dipshit. It shows the fundamental reality of the underlying investment. It is a scarce asset. It is the most desirable to own cryptocurrency. It is the cryptocurrency with the most notoriety and notability. There's only about 13 million bitcoins in existence. And just in the United States, there's over 330 million people. It is a global commodity that anybody in any country can buy, even if they say it's illegal. You can't prevent somebody in Russia from buying Bitcoin, even though it's illegal. And trust me, there's a lot of Russians that own Bitcoin. I know a couple of them by correspondence that have Bitcoin. And no, they're not part of the KGB or some shit like that, or whatever whatever it is called now, um, where their government's doing it, but the people can't. I'm talking about regular, plain old Russian citizens that own Bitcoin. I know people from quite a few countries where it's illegal who have correspondence with, yeah, I got some Bitcoin. People in Venezuela, it's illegal. They have Bitcoin. You can't prevent anybody in the world from buying it. So I I wanted to just do a quick little bit of math with you right now to explain the investment from a technical side. Again, we have 13 million Bitcoins in circulation, many of which are believed to be lost. Another 10 million that will be mined over about the next 100 years. And this is a hard rule. It's not like gold where all of a sudden somebody can find a way to get it all out. It doesn't work that way. No matter how good you get at getting it out, the algorithm adjusts to only allow so much to come out on any individual day, week, month, year. Okay? So this is a, that's part of what makes Bitcoin work. It's, the rules are known. They're not subject to just arbitrary change. All right? There are about 7527 billion people in the world. 1% of that is 72,270,000 people. Translation, if 1% of the world decides they all want to own one Bitcoin, and remember, top 1%, we're talking about the millionaires, billionaires, etc. in the world. At that point, if 1% each want one Bitcoin, the math doesn't work, the most everybody could own is 0.17 Bitcoin, and the reason I think Bitcoin is just beginning to show what it will be worth long term is that it is just really beginning to be accepted by people that, was, that were never Bitcoiners, like never Trumpers, like never Bitcoiners. I am hearing from people that are dead ass broke that have scraped together a hundred bucks, they want to buy Bitcoin, and I'm hearing from multimillionaires. That are asking me what to invest in. And I'm going to tell you something. It's all scaring the shit out of me. Even though I'm bullish long term. And I'll tell you what. When people start buying things they don't understand. They're real quick to blame you when it goes down 50, to, you know, 25 to 50%. And it, this is a roller coaster. And if you're not willing to go up and down, don't. And if you can't afford to lose money, don't. If you can't afford to tie money up, don't. But I think everybody should be holding some Bitcoin. But for the love of God... Don't ask me my advice until you at least understand what cryptocurrency is and how it works. And there's there's a playlist that I've given out a hundred times. I'll do it one more time today. It's called Dash School by Amanda B. Johnson, who we had on the show. The first three episodes are not about Dash. They're about how cryptocurrency works. And I think if you buy one dollar of cryptocurrency without understanding the most basic components of how it works, you're setting yourself up to be miserable. Right? And I say all that because I'm about to give a recommendation on a cryptocurrency to look into. And I do this with massive, massive trepidation. And the reason I do that is I know there are people who go, Jack said to buy this. I'm going to go out and buy $1,000. Do this shit. Make your own decision. Look into it. But it's worked out for me pretty well already. And it's called Eon. Eon Coin. And it's A-E-O-N, like Eon Flux, right? Eon Coin. Basically a light version of Monero. And about three weeks ago, it kind of got on my radar, and I looked at everything that was going on. I said, this thing's going to make a run. I picked up about $1,000 worth of it. I wish I would have picked up $10,000 worth of it. And uh, it's done really, really well. And I think it will continue to do well and build over time. It also could shit the bed and go back to where it was for four years tomorrow. So that's a speculation. That's I'm more concerned with you buying that than I am with Bitcoin. And here's here's what's going to happen though. And this is why I'm predicting things like Eon, uh, ZenCash, uh, these lower price crypto, anything under sub fifty bucks. Here's what I think is going to happen as the mainstream awakens to this. And if it's a bubble. It's a bubble. It's a scam. Shut up. You don't understand anything about what you're talking. There's bubbles within it, but the whole thing itself is not a bubble. Again, there's a finite resource. There's going to be a lot of people that look at this the way people look at gold and silver. They buy silver because they get more ounces. But it's not why you buy silver. You buy silver because at the current price, you look at it and think that the upside of it is better right now than gold. Because it doesn't matter if you put $50 in silver or $50 in gold. If gold goes up 10%, you're up 10%. If silver goes up 3%, you are up 3 Just because you got 2 ounces versus a little tiny piece doesn't matter. And this is magnified in cryptocurrency. This is the genius of Bitcoin. It can go out 9 decimal points. It's a cap and fractionalize. Completely the opposite of fractional reserve. Okay? Cap, There's only so much, and so that we don't have a currency shortage, you can make it tiny, 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 itty-bitty because it's digital. But people are going to come in, and psychology takes over, and maybe they buy a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin or whatever, but here's what they're going, what have you heard people say about Bitcoin? While I have been recommending to buy Bitcoin, because I'm a little trepid right now, because I have a big correction before we find the floor at 10K, which I think it'll be, it, and it could blow up tomorrow. I don't know whether to wait or not. Please understand that. But psychology will kick in, and, and this is what I've heard. Because when I was at three grand, I'm like, buy some. It was at like 2500 buy some. Oh, I missed the opportunity. Buy some. Five grand. Buy some. Six grand. Buy some. I missed the opportunity. I missed the opportunity. I missed the opportunity. Nye, nye, nye. Shut up. All right? So now, I just don't know if it's, it's long term fine. But I don't know if you're going to be happy next week. That's why I'm, you've got to make your own choice. But what's going to happen is people are going to end. Well, I missed the big opportunity with Bitcoin. Because if I buy Bitcoin at $10,000 and it goes to $20,000, it's going to be amazing. But I only double my money. If I would have bought Bitcoin when it was $5, bucks, i would be a multimillionaire. So what's everybody do? They look for the sub... 50 and sub 10 dollar altcoins. Now, in that in the world especially of sub 10 dollar, 99% are garbage going nowhere. So if you can look within that sub 10 dollar range, sub 20 dollar range, sub 30 dollar range and pick the ones that have real technical value to them in the way that they operate and run and the the question that they answer. Or, just on pure speculation, ones that sound good and have some firmness to them and are clearly not pump and dump ICOs, you get ahead of this bell curve of all these people are going to come in and the baby boomers are going to eventually be able to turn loose their IRA money on this shit and you will see. People think this is 1999 in the dot-com boom. This is 1994. Now, the important thing to understand is you still could have picked stocks in '94 and lost during the boom. So you got to be careful. But I'm going to say, Eoncoin and ZenCash. Look into those if you're if you're considering altcoins. If you wouldn't put the money on a table in Vegas. Don't spend it. Now, let me clarify something. I look at that the same way, but you know how much money I'll put on a table in Vegas? Zero. I don't gamble that way. I don't gamble in Vegas. I don't gamble on the crap stable. I don't gamble on the roulette wheel. I don't do it. I believe in cowboy logic. You want to double your money, fold and in half, put it back in your pocket. I don't see trading as gambling. It's not the same thing. Somebody doesn't have to lose for you to win. There are rules and fundamentals that are involved, and you can learn them and do better. But I still take that same approach. If it's not money, that I'm okay losing. I won't spend it. Please do that. And I, I, I appended this today's show because, one, I think there's opportunity here. But, two, I don't want you to get hurt by getting greedy. And a lot of people are going to get hurt by being greedy in this. They're going to hear something. They're going to read a white paper. Somebody's going to tell them something's really good. They're going to go out and buy something that's at 75 cents because, oh, my God, it can't go down from there. Well, yeah, it can. It can also become irrelevant. So please be careful and understand what you're buying before you buy it, no matter what it is. Um, On buying, though, you know, at some point you're going to buy stuff. I mean, that's just how America works. That's how our society works, and we can't make everything for ourselves. And, uh When you do, if you're going to buy it online, if you go to tspaz.com first, and the website is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, you will go to just basically a page of the Survival Podcast website, and you can see all my categories of reviews I've done and things there, uh, the deals of the day over at Amazon, and you can see my most recent reviews with the second link that's there. Or you can go to survivalpodcast.com, scroll down, and see the most recent review. And uh, check out the stuff that I review on Amazon. But the important thing is, once you go to t if you do any online shopping after that through t you help Survival Podcast and the work that we do, even if you were going to buy it anyway. It's very important because it doesn't cost you anything to help us. Um, but I do put out these reviews, and I think it's important that I do this. And I mentioned the one today in the little segment that I did with the person that asked a question about it. It's BioGroom Waterless Pet Shampoo. Now, I've used some other ones over the years because, you know, bathing giant dogs is not easy, and you want to keep them smelling good, looking good, and healthy. And I personally actually don't think your dogs need that many baths. Um, I was a trapper in high school. That was a, one of the ways that I made money when I was a dirt poor kid because my white privilege check never showed up. And uh, I'd outrun in these trap lines, and I'd, you know, catch quite a few coyotes, and, you know, occasionally i get really lucky. And catch like a red fox. Because back in the day, like a red fox was over $100, a hundred bucks, an nice one. And I would look at these pelts, and they were beautiful. They were shiny. They were healthy. Since it was winter, they didn't have bad fleas or nothing like that. And they looked like they'd been brushed, especially when you, you brushed them out a little bit before you took them to the fur buyer. And man, and that's see, canines actually are pretty good at keeping themselves clean. But our dogs don't live like that anymore and they get spoiled, and they roll in stuff, and they come in the house, and they stink, and something has to be done. So every once in a while, you got to give them a full-on bath. But I always liked having this intermediary. Well, I found this new stuff, and Charlie's lucky I found it, because I was out of the old stuff. And I had ordered it, and so it was coming that day. And that day, he comes in, and I'm like, you stink. And I'm like, I sniffed him, I'm like, you smell like rotten Cheetos and popcorn. That's the only way to describe. Like, like, like somebody left like a couple bags of Cheetos and popcorn in the garbage for like a week, and you rolled in it. So I went and checked all the garbage. Not that I expected Cheetos and popcorn. In he didn't get in the gar- I don't know what the hell he got in, but he stunk. So he basically stayed outside that day until the UPS man came. And we had a cold snap coming. It was 50 degrees out. I don't know if you've ever tried to give a bath to a 100-pound pit bull in 50-degree weather with a garden host that doesn't want one. But it's not fun. So we waited for the UPS man to come, and I sprayed him down all over the place. And I sprayed it in my hands and rubbed it around his, because it was like his head and his neck where he really stunk. And I rubbed it all over there with my hands so I wouldn't get it in his eyes. And then I brushed him out with a brush. And, man, he smelled great. I figured, you know what, let's go ahead and do the other two dogs. I brought Lucy and uh, Max out. And Max, 150-pound German Shepherd. Fifteen minutes, all three dogs were done smelling good, shiny, and happy. And nobody too upset. And I got a new routine now. Whenever they get this treatment, as soon as I'm done, they get a biscuit. It makes them much more acceptable to it. Like, I don't like this. I don't like being sprayed, but I get a biscuit, so it's okay. And, uh, man, it's, it's been great. And because of it, Charlie and I were spared the hose on a 50-degree day because I would have been as wet as he was by the time I was over with. I know that. Um, a little piece of advice here. You can read the review. I mentioned the Furminator, which is a de-shedding brush. If you're gonna use any kind of waterless shampoo on your dogs, this or otherwise, it's best to be dry fur. So if you're gonna deshed them, deshed them with like your Furminator brush or whatever first, then spray them and then brush them with a brush. For brushing your dogs, um, I don't know what it's like what the style is called, but it's a it's a very common style of hairbrush that people use. You'll have little Like wire bristles, they're really uh, spread out, though. They're not tight together, and they'll have like little balls on them. Um, And I have one that I buy off Amazon. It's $4.49, made by Conair. And I think any brush like it, I have a link in the review to that. That's the best brush for your dogs. It doesn't take a lot of hair off. This is for like just brushing them. And I'll tell you, if you'll brush your dogs a couple times a week, for like a couple minutes, if that, like even a minute, it helps the oils get to the outside of their hair because what they don't do that wild canines do is, if you watch coyotes, foxes, et cetera, they groom a lot like a cat. You'll see them licking their hair, straightening it out, and our domestic dogs have kind of lost not all of it but a lot of that behavior. And that's one of the reasons they don't get that oil uh, from their skin out onto their fur, and you brushing it will help with that. So whether you get the uh, waterless shampoo or just the brush, um, check out the review today, and remember, you can always help us by shopping at TSPAS.com. That brings us to our song of the day, and of course, we're doing a tribute to Ozzy Osbourne this week, and we have a song called "Road to Nowhere," um, which is which is a really great song. It's not actually a song that I listen to a lot. It was a song I was aware of. I was a child of the '70s and '80s. I joined the army in 1989 and left for training in 1990. And uh, this came out in 1991. And when I went in the Army, I mean, I was deployed in most of 91, didn't have a lot of music we were getting. We were listening to what we had, not what was coming out. And about 92, I was listening to most of the country music, and I kind of missed that evolution of Ozzy Osbourne. But I, I had heard this song, and I do like it a lot, and I love the meaning of it. Again, it's called Road to Nowhere. Here's what Song Facts has, has about this. It says, this is a reflection on Ozzy's life. He had just gone sober over after 20 years of drug and alcohol abuse. He credits his wife, Sharon, for keeping him alive. She's also his manager. The album revived Ozzy's career. It proved he still had a huge fan base. Uh, the lyrics speak to me probably differently than he really means them, I guess, in this song. Um, again, I think a lot, Ozzy's music is a lot deeper than people that don't know who Ozzy Osbourne is and what he's all about than they would think. Uh, again, the whole satanic bullshit, fake crap. Um, let me read you the lyrics, to at least some of the lyrics to the song. I was looking back on my life and all the things I've done to me. I'm still looking for the answers and I'm still searching for the key. The wreckage of my past keeps haunting me. It just won't leave me alone. I still find it all a mystery could it be a dream? The road to nowhere leads to me. Through all the happiness and sorrow, I guess I'd do it all again. Live for today and not tomorrow. It's still the road that never ends. And then it repeats some of the refrain and all. But that one line, because this song is so much about lamentation, I think it's buried in it, and it's so important. I guess I'd do it all again. This song speaks to me because as I've gotten older, and I've tried to be wiser, and I've tried to understand and learn from my mistakes, and I'm also a person with a very visual memory, very visual mind. Like when we were talking today about building a water tank or something like that. I I don't just, like, know how to put it together. I can see the finished product. I can see the individual joints in my head. I just have that kind of a mind. So when I start lamenting my past and I think about maybe, you know, being in high school and being mean to a girl that liked me, it's just something that stupid simple. Um, And thinking, you know, you're kind of a dick. Like, why did you have to do that? Uh, Or something like that. I can actually relive the moment. And, of course, there's things that are far worse than that. That's just an example of like a, a small thing. And a lot of times I'll think about some real mistakes, some things that I really feel, yeah, I screwed that up. I would not do that again. And I think then I start thinking about the chain reaction. And I think about like, well, if I went back to that moment and I didn't do that one thing, if that was before I met Dorothy, would I have ever met Dorothy? Or I think about a relationship with a woman that didn't work out, and maybe I was the one that was at fault, and I made the mistake that caused the breakup. Would I have my wife today? Would that relationship, was it even right for me? Would it have also ended later and then thrown off my whole life? Like The road to somewhere leads through my actions rather than the road to nowhere leads to me. That's how I read that. That's how I feel that. And when I look back at it all, and I hear people say, like, if you could go back in time and sit down with your 15-year-old or 20-year-old self and have a 10-minute conversation, what would you tell yourself? And what I really think is absolutely nothing. The things that I have in my life are too valuable to risk on changing the past. Now, as I've said, I think if you know if I were sitting in a prison cell today, for having committed murder because I lost my temper, I'd want to go back and tell that 17 year old kid, when this happens, don't do it. Don't do it. But I think apart from that, if there's anything wonderful in your life, even if there's bad, lamenting the past is a mistake. Live for today and not tomorrow. It's still the road that never ends. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times be tough or even if they don't.